0: Brothers and sisters, it's always a privilege to be able to open God's words with you, and we get to do that now, so I would invite you to open up in your copy of God's word to Galatians chapter 5, and as you are doing so, to stand once more for the reading of God's holy word. We, as you know, have been making our way through uh, Galatians, and we're going to be taking up verses 7 through 12 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give our attention to what he would say to the church. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats once more. I I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, a question, and I want you to think about it, to really consider it. And the question is this, what, what is the worst thing society can accuse us of? I want you to think about that. In our deeply secular and, ironically enough, pagan culture, what is the unpardonable sin? And I want to suggest to you, church, that the worst thing that you can be today is non-inclusive. And by that, I mean this. Our secular overlords demand we be affirming, tolerant, loving, And accepting. These are all popular buzzwords, as you no doubt are aware. Which means, in a lot of ways, the unpardonable sin today is to be offensive. It's a big no-no in our world. You can be a lot of things in our day and age. You can be divorced three times. You can be a boy turned girl. You can make your living on OnlyFans. Or you can make your living by living off of the government. You can go on social media and brag about your latest abortion. You can even be a millionaire, lifelong politician. You know, a real servant of the people. You can be anything that you want. The sky is the limit. Except you cannot be offensive. This is illustrated well in a shirt I saw just a couple of weeks ago. I saw a lady wearing this shirt, and it had plastered right across the front this line, My faith is love. And you can imagine, right below that, my faith is love, was a big graphic of a rainbow flag. Love, acceptance, tolerance. That is the single most important thing today. At at least that's what we are told. Just maybe zoom out for a quick moment and and think about this question. What is America's public religion? And I would argue that, that really America's public religion these days is paganism baptized in secularism. And the first commandment that thunders from that mountain is, Thou shalt not offend. Herein lies the problem, though. Christianity is, far and away, the single most offensive religion in all of the world. Now, of course, I'm not talking here about your typical squishy, evangelifish jellyfish church. There is nothing offensive about a diluted, limp-wristed God who only loves everyone and wants us all to have our best life now. Too often in such an environment, that sort of God is akin to a spiritual cheerleader up in the sky, rooting you and I on. Again, there's nothing offensive about that. We all love having our own fans. Everyone is fine when we speak of a higher power or when we speak of believing in ourselves. But when God and his gospel are faithfully proclaimed, when Christ is heralded as sovereign king and not just ruler of this world, but judge when God's law thunders and we are confronted with our own depravity and the fact that what we are is hell-bound, when what is put before us as the only means of salvation is Christ dying for sinners, well, you start talking like that and you will very quickly discover the sharp end of the stick. This is why Paul can refer to the cross as an offense. He says that in verse 11. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, the undiluted, unmanipulated, unadulterated, unfiltered reality of the cross of Christ is, by very definition, offensive. The natural man hates it. The unregenerate recoils from it. To say that God and God alone must save and that God saves through Christ and Christ alone, that is enraging, especially in the context of our pluralistic age where you have your truth and I have my truth. In other places, perhaps most notably 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul can go so far as to say that the cross is both foolishness and a stumbling block. Why? Because the cross reveals our utter sinfulness and it leaves us entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ. People do not like that. It's like trying to give a cat a bath. Be assured of this. Just so long as Jesus is relegated to moral teacher or good example or nice helper or kind friend, all is well. The whole world can tolerate him at that level. Lip service is easy enough. But the moment that Jesus Christ is placed on the cross as a wrath-bearing substitute for sinners, as soon as He is the only sin-paying Savior in all of the universe, the very moment the cursed cross is put front and center, and that it is only by you and I placing our faith in him that we can find peace with God. The second you go there is the second that all hell breaks loose. Suddenly there is offense. You mean to tell me that I'm a sinner and that I deserve hell? How dare you? I am a good person. Are you really saying that apart from me turning from my sin and believing in your God, that that if I don't do that, then I'm under God's wrath? Yeah. That is exactly what we are saying. And we're only saying it because God said it first. In other words, I'm not sharing my opinion you're not sharing your opinion. We have a higher authority. God has spoken on this matter. You see, the cross is offensive. And in my experience, it is most offensive to religious people. Consider the Galatians for a moment. These guys were uber-religious They've sort of been hypnotized by the Judaizers, and and while they are under this uh, sort of sway of theirs, what have we seen these churches in Galatia tempted with? Well, certainly circumcision, right? We see this not just in our passage here this morning, verse 11, but throughout this letter. Apparently, to really be a Christian, one has to do more than trust in Christ, You actually need to have something clipped. They were also drawn to the Mosaic law. All of chapter 2, all of chapter 3 make this very plain. If you really want to be righteous, they thought, then you need to do your part. You need to try extra hard to, to sort of put it in language that we are familiar with today. You really need to be the best version of you that you can be. And then, God will accept you. This also meant that they were flirting with a religious calendar. This is how Galatians 4.10 puts it. Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul's flabbergasted by this. These churches who were free in Christ, they have now begun to go back to following some old covenant Jewish calendar. Things like feast days, the day of atonement, the feast of weeks, the year of jubilee, stuff like that. They were drawn to this stuff. And not just drawn to it, they were infatuated with it. They actually thought that that by adhering to this calendar that they could somehow please God. I could go on, but the point is simply this. These very religious Galatians thought that by their religious efforts that they were gaining favor with God. They thought that by their own doing that they somehow had standing before God. They'd really bitten hook, line, and sinker on that one Bible verse that so many people know. God helps those who help themselves. One of our mantras today, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's like that other favorite Bible verse cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, the one that doesn't exist in the pages of Scripture. And not only is it not found in God's Word, but that idea is actually antithetical to what is in God's Word. The fact of the matter is, God does not help those who help themselves. The Father is not your co pilot. Jesus Christ does not need your cooperation when it comes to saving sinners. And I am sorry, but the Holy Spirit is not knocking at the door of your heart, just waiting for you to undo the deadbolt so that he can come on in. That might be good Christianese, but it is rotten theology. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God does not help those who help themselves. God only helps those who realize that they cannot help themselves. And so when you zoom out and you look at what is taking place in our passage, don't miss this. It is all, whether it's about circumcision or dietary restrictions or Moses or Old Covenant ceremonies and rites, this is all a vain attempt for these Christians in Galatia to justify themselves before God. It's what they're doing. They're giving a quick head nod to Jesus as if his person and work were important But then these same Christians are quick to jump right back on their spiritual treadmills, thinking that by burning spiritual calories, they will somehow be fit for heaven. The problem with the spiritual treadmill, though, is that it removes the offense of the cross. It sands off some of the rough edges. The cross is rated R. So what they were trying to do was vid-angel the whole thing. You know what I mean? Sort of make it family-friendly. Take off any of the cuss words or the nudity. That's what circumcision and the law and the calendar and all that stuff is. It is your good works. And the second you think your good works can add to or build upon the work of Christ and His cross, you have neutered the cross. You've removed its offense entirely. And the cross is offensive. If you understand what the cross is saying. The cross is saying you can't do it. The cross says you are a wretch. The cross says no amount of your religious devotion will ever be enough. The cross says you are a rebel to God, you deserve judgment, and there is nothing that you can ever do to placate God and His wrath. That is what the cross says. It screams that we are all destined for the pit of hell. But God, in His infinite grace, has seen fit to show us mercy despite our sin. Christ has come, and Christ has come to redeem. Christ has come not to help those who can help themselves, but He has come to do for those what they cannot do for themselves. As the incarnate Son of God, He lived a life of utter and complete perfection under the law of God. Let's be honest, a life you and I haven't lived and a life we couldn't live. He then went to the cross and died a sinner's death. A horrendous death we all deserve for our rebellion to God. Then, three days later, God raised Christ up from the grave. And now, the resurrected and ruling Christ offers pardon and righteousness to sinners everywhere. And He offers it to sinners, not if they first clean up their act, Not if they can somehow become religious enough. Not even if sinners can act Christian enough. No, the only way you can have Christ and His righteousness and His forgiveness and His freedom is by you giving up on yourself. You must have the eyes to see that you are spiritually bankrupt. And that your only hope is found by you abandoning yourself to Christ. Anything less removes, again, verse 11, the offense of the cross. It's Paul's point. The second we are anything more than depraved sinners standing under the wrath of a holy God. Desperately in need of a sovereign Savior who doesn't just make us save bull, but actually saves us through the blood of His cross. Anything more than that is to elevate man and dethrone Christ. That's what makes the Judaizers' heir so egregious. They're smuggling their own works into the equation. They're thinking that by what they do, that they can somehow add to what Christ has already done. Which means that in a word, what they're saying, whether they're saying it or not, is that Christ is not enough. You remember, back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul faced this head on. He warned the churches in Galatians 2.21, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you're standing before God, and by that we mean your sins being forgiven, you being declared righteous, welcomed into God's family, if any of that comes down to you, well then what Christ did, His coming, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection... If it all comes down to you, then what Christ did is worthless. This is why Paul has labored throughout this letter to condemn any mixing of works with faith. To smuggle in your works or achievements and think that it will make you right in God's sight. That is a great affront. To conflate the law with the Gospel is to make Christ's death on your behalf pointless. So the cross is an offense, and so Paul is on the offense. He is zealous to show us that our right standing before God, it is only, and I mean only, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In a lot of ways, that is all introduction. Forgive me. I know that is, how shall we say, an extended intro. But you have to have a rock-solid foundation laid before you can put the walls up. I trust the concrete is dried, though. Let's let's grab some lumber. I want to draw your attention this morning to three ways in which self-saving is spiritual suicide. Self-saving, that is, anything that you think you do, that is spiritual suicide. And make no mistake about it. We are all, as sons and daughters of Adam, prone to this. So here are three arguments against thinking that you can save yourself in any way. First, self-saving is not from God. It's not from God. Put your eyes back on verse 7. Notice the Christian life is pictured as something of a race. Paul says, you, you Christians in Galatia, you were running well. And that's what the Christian life is like in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's something of a race. As you've no doubt heard it said before, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And the Christian life, the Christian race that we are, we are all running, it has a beginning and it has an end. It also has a track, it has a direction that you're supposed to run on. There, there's order to this whole thing. The problem, though, is that while the Galatians were running this race, someone got in their way. To use the language of verse 7, someone hindered them. So it, it's like they were all running well, but all of a sudden, all, all of a sudden, someone sort of came running down out of the stands and threw some hurdles on the track and Tripped them all up. I should also add that there is something of a play on words here in the original Greek that is not altogether apparent in the ESV. That verb there that the ESV translates as hindered, it comes from a word that has the sense of cutting into something. It's the idea that the Christians were all fine and dandy, Running the christian li- running their Christian life with their eyes fixed on Christ, but then almost out of nowhere, these false teachers came barreling onto the track and cut them off and knocked them off their course. How so? you ask well, here's where the play on words is reflected. These false teachers did so by promoting circumcision, right. A cutting off of something as a way to stand right in God's sight. So, catch this. The Galatians were running well, Paul says, but then they were cut off by those who wanted them to cut something off. And Paul's point is that this idea of circumcision is altogether foreign to the gospel, it's not from God. That's what he means in verse 8. This persuasion, this idea, this teaching, what you are tempted to, what you're hearing, what's flooding your social media feeds, the books that you are reading, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Because God calls you through his spirit to simply receive Christ. To rely on him and to rest in him. Because the true and scandalous gospel is that Christ is enough. That Christ has done enough even for you. So Paul's saying, don't yield to these false teachers who would have you to believe that you can in any way save yourself. Again, verse 8 this is not from him who calls you. Second, self saving does violence to grace. Let me say that again. Any notion that you can do something or add to your salvation or contribute or build upon what Christ has already done for you, that does violence to the biblical idea of grace. Consider verse 9. We don't want to take this passage out of its context. Paul writes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We might think of it this way. What what have we learned from Galatians? Well, the only way that we can be right in God's sight is on account of Christ. Or if you've been with us for the summer, as you know, I've said this multiple times every week, Christ is enough. Christ has done it all. But the leaven of the false teachers, this idea that you can by your own works help save yourselves, it in The entire lump, doesn't it? I trust we know how leaven works. Place a a little bit in a a batch of dough and it works its way through that entire loaf and eventually it causes uh, all of the bread to rise when it is baked. Similarly, Paul says, just a little pinch of this works based righteousness, just a tiny little pinch. And it will permeate the entirety of the Christian and the Christian's life and the Christian church. Just as a tiny little bit of poison in a cup of water will contaminate that entire glass, well, so too, just a little poison of self-saving will pollute the entire gospel. This brings us to Paul's third argument against thinking that you can in any way help save yourself. Third, judgment will fall on those false teachers. What awaits those who dilute the free gospel of grace is nothing less than fierce judgment. Paul pulls no punches in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And don't miss this. Though the Galatians were veering, though they were sort of lurching toward the spiritual suicide of thinking that they could somehow add to the work of Christ, I want you to notice that Paul is rather optimistic. He is confident that they will repent of this and that they will rest in Christ. But Paul doesn't appear to be nearly as optimistic about the false teachers who were peddling this poison. He's convinced that the churches will rest in Christ, but those who are corrupting the churches, they will experience the hammer of God's judgment fall upon them. Which means that we need to pause here, and we need to pause because verse 10 forces us to make a distinction, one that is not just biblical in nature, but one that is also very helpful. And here's the difference. The Bible makes a distinction between the deceiver and the deceived, between the leader and the led. The one, the deceiver, the leader, will, verse 10, bear the penalty. Perhaps more familiar into our own minds, we we think of how uh, this uncomfortable reality provokes James' warning to the church. He says in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So for those in the pulpit, there is much more at stake. The line is narrower. The responsibility is intensified. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those Christians in Galatia were just automatically off the hook and absolved of any of their sin simply because they were just sort of regular old church members. That's not the point. And I should add, the same is true for you. Do not think for a moment that just because you are a, again, regular old church member, just a regular old Christian, that you are not responsible for truth or error, for the gospel or pseudo-gospels. You are. This is especially true for you husbands and fathers. As the head of your home, God has entrusted you, men, with a unique and special responsibility. Responsibility. To provide and protect, not just physically, but spiritually, for those God has entrusted to your care. But Paul's point here is this. Those so-called pastors and conference speakers, those authors and podcasters who would stand up and raise their voice and then utter and write falsehoods about the gospel, Paul's point is this. That will not go unpunished those who would remove the offense of the cross and seek to dilute the 100-proof reality that is the stiff drink of the gospel, well, to do so will result in them, end of verse 10, bearing the penalty. Now, as I said, Paul presents three arguments here against thinking that you can in any way help save yourself. First, this has nothing to do, it's not from God at all, Second, it does violence to grace. And third, those who promote this nonsense will be judged. That's all true. But but maybe underlying it or maybe standing over top of it is the bigger issue, and that is any notion of self-saving blunts the offense of the gospel. That's why this is all so ugly. The stench rises to heaven. Because it is the smell, verse 11, of the offense of the cross being removed. Any notion of you and I not being totally and utterly dependent upon the grace of God revealed in Christ, and that somehow we can actually pick up the slack and do something to help save ourselves, anything like that is a stench in the nostrils of our Father. I would invite you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of the Galatians. Just for a second. And and as you do so, how foolish, think about this, how foolish do you have to be to think that you can somehow make up for your sin, undo your sin, or atone for your sin simply by cutting off a small piece of your flesh? But as ludicrous as that is, I would suggest that you and I do similar stuff all the time. Sure, we we quickly shake our head, and rightfully so, at the idea of Roman Catholic penance. But as, as evangelicals, we sort of have our own sanctified version of penance. For example, we think that if we sin in some heinous way, well, then what we need to do the next day is read double the chapters of the Bible then God will be cool with us again, right? Or we beat and bruise ourselves, depriving ourselves of the Lord's table because we didn't have a, quote, good week. As if the body and blood of Christ is a reward reserved for those Christians who have good weeks. For crying out loud, I have known Christians who have skipped church because, to use their own words, they messed up. But isn't the means of grace exactly what sinners who messed up need? I mean, if you can't find forgiveness in Christ, then where on earth are you going to find it? Sure, we don't do the Our Fathers and the the Hail Marys. We refuse to give alms for the absolution of our sins. That stuff's all crude, we think. But we are quick to think that if we would just maybe listen to more Christian music or share the gospel one time this week or, or be more spiritual, then God might accept us. The fact of the matter is we do this stuff all the time. Sometimes we do it in subtle ways and sometimes we do it in not so subtle ways. But the punchline is that we are doing exactly what the Galatians were doing. We think that we can help God save us. Now, granted, we don't mean that Christ is useless. That would be crass. Sure, we need him. Yeah, he had to come and die and do all that cross stuff. Yeah, that's true. But at the end of the day, we still think the ball is in our court. But redeeming grace, what I pray you are being awakened to is the singular life-giving reality that all you need is Christ. That Christ really is enough. That Christ really is sufficient. That He really has done everything necessary to present you faultless before God on that day. That what Christ has done on that offensive cross is actually and truly reconcile you to God. Besides, you could never do enough anyway. Do you really think your paltry attempts at being a good Christian or keeping the law or not sinning this one afternoon, do you really think that any of that puts any weight on your side of the scale? This is the part where as Christians and as brothers and sisters, we've we've just got to press into one another when we go sideways on these things. In what world, in what universe, will you reading two extra chapters of the Bible undo your gross, lustful, and pornographic thoughts? Answer me that. How does you determining to do better next time actually atone for your anger, hatred, and gossip this time? Explain to me how you attending church and not beating your kids somehow absolves you from your greedy love of money, your covetous spirit, and your craving to be popular. But we do this stuff, don't we? We do this stuff all the time. We deceive ourselves into thinking that that writing a tithe check can somehow remove the stain of our hypocrisy undo our latent fear of man, and curb our wanton jealousy. But it can't. And we know it can't. We know it can't. And you know what? Neither can circumcision. That's really the point of Paul's rather vulgar comments there in verse 12. With a bit of sanctified sass, Paul says, I wish, verse 12, those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, Given the nature of the congregation, I'm going to be PG. What Paul is saying is something like this. If you really think clipping a little piece of your flesh will somehow make you right with God, why not go all the way and clip everything? Why not be extra safe? I mean, why settle for circumcision? You do know castration is an option. Then you'll really be right with God. Why settle for JV? You can play varsity level. Of course, Paul is being utterly sarcastic. The only way anyone can ever be right in God's side is simply by entrusting themselves to Christ. As Christians, we have to have this forever settled in our minds. We have to be reminded of this. We have to preach this to ourselves. We have to have these seeds go deep down into the depths of our souls. We cannot save ourselves. He must save us. We do the sinning. Christ does the saving. And therein lies the scandal, the offense of the cross. The cross, brothers and sisters, is an offense. It's also glory. In fact, it's both. The cross is an offense because the cross announces that you cannot save yourself. The cross, in all caps, it reads, you are a wretch. There's nothing that you can do to ever catch God's eye, as it were. Your resume, Christian, will never be enough to land you that job. But at the same time, the cross is also glory because while it announces you are a wretch, it likewise announces that Christ redeems wretches. God saves those who can't save themselves through the cross. Christ actually reaches out to those who will not reach out to him. Through that ugly, bloody, and cursed cross, God is in the business of reconciling sinners to himself, and he does so all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In in a lot of ways, the cross is something that is utterly paradoxical. And it's paradoxical because the cross is this Big, like glowing neon billboard, and it reads God hates sinners, and that God loves sinners. The cross says, Wrath must fall on sinners. That's the offense of it all. But this same wrath has fallen upon God's own Son who stood in the place of sinners. And that's the glory of it all. And so do not think even for a moment that you can somehow through your own efforts do what the cross can't. To do so would be to rob the cross both of its offense and its glory. That's really how we should understand circumcision here. Circumcision is not a harmless cultural badge or some innocent hygienic procedure. John Stott is on the money when he says this, circumcision stands for a religion of human achievement of what man can do by his own good works. In contrast, Christ stands for a religion of divine achievement of what God has done through the finished work of Christ. I think the point that Stott is making, and rightfully so, is that that you are going to be saved either by what you do or or by what Christ does. Period. Stott presses on and rightfully notes, circumcision means law, works, and bondage, while Christ means grace, faith, and freedom and you can't have both. You you mustn't believe this lie that you can somehow with one hand cling to your own pseudo self-righteousness and then with the other hand somehow cling to the cross of Christ. You can't do that. You will either have self as your savior or you will have Christ as your savior. That's really what made the heresy in Galatia so gross. They were attempting to do both. With one hand, they sought to present their own resume, and then with the other, they attempted to cling to the cross of Christ. But you can't do that. Self as Savior and Christ as Savior are mutually exclusive. Which means, church, if you rest in anything but Christ for your acceptance before God, you are damning Yourself, But in Christ, you have everything. In Christ, you have pardon and promise. You have freedom and forgiveness. Christ gives to you life and liberty, hope and heaven. Through that offensive cross, you don't just receive grace. Brothers and sisters, you receive God. And therefore, to return to that metaphor of verse 7, we are to keep running well. And to run well is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews 12 to the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we come to you. This morning, in the name of Christ, your Son and our Savior, praying that your Spirit would see fit to uphold us this day. We confess to you that we are ever prone to look anywhere and everywhere other than Christ. And pray that you would rid uh, these temptations from us, that our, our default posture would be one of trusting Christ of resting in Christ. That our ears would not grow weary with hearing the good news of what Christ has done for us. That You'd be growing us and maturing us in the faith, in grace. We pray that Christ would be treasured by our hearts. And we pray that where Christ is not currently being treasured, that Your Spirit spirit would do work in us so that we might treasure Christ in those ways. We pray that you would be building unity and love and joy in the life of this body. We pray this would be for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen.